Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 165. Well, just ahead, EV maker Lucid blaming supply chain problems and a new system for some old problems. And AMD says more pain is coming for PCs. But what about the server market? And the invisible cloud philosophy behind hybrid cloud software company Nutanix. Stocks on fire. The company is fascinating. And the CEO, Rajiv Ramaswamy, joins us. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With Era, customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And there are so many ways to listen to the Drill Down podcast, not least of which TuneIn, iHeart, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, iTunes. But on all of these platforms, if you click the subscribe button, you'll be alerted to our most recent episode and you won't miss a thing. And the Drill Down is also brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, thanks for joining the Drill Down podcast. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is with us, of course. Thank goodness. Isaac, our executive producer, how are you? I'm great, Corey. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Well, let's look at Lucid. Have you seen the Lucid Air? Have you seen it in the wild? Or have you seen it, you know, the promotional stuff for it? I've seen all of the above. There's a few Lucids on the street here in L.A. And cars are different in L.A. Are People they? People have a different relationship with cars. People love oh, their wow. cars in L.A. It's a status symbol It's here. It's... um. It's just it's, a whole different vibe. It's yeah. a whole like people I know with no money have yeah. some nice ass cars in LA. That is a very LA thing. Yeah. You know, you'll be renting a very um, low income apartment, but still be driving a Tesla. But Lucid, let's get to Lucid. Lucid trades under LCID and shares have tumbled almost 55% since the start of the year 2022. Currently trading around 18 bucks a share, barely above their 52 week low of 13 and change and way below their 52 week high at 57 bucks a share. Lucid makes a car called the Lucid Air. It's a sedan that you know, they claim it's better than some of the other sedans out there, but there's just the one car that they make with a couple different uh, fit options, retailing anywhere from 107 grand to 169 grand, I think from the touring uh, model to the, the Air Dream. I say they make this car. They're trying to make this car, but uh, even their most base case car, they've had to jack the price on, and they aren't able to make anywhere near as many as they thought. They have both missed the targets that they've set and continue to lower those targets. Um, back in February, 
They took their target from 20,000 cars this year to about 13,000. Now they're putting that number at 6,500. So in the course of, you know, six months, five months, what is that, from February to, to, to now to August, they've gone from 20,000 estimate to a 6,500 estimate of how many cars they can make. Um, they're citing, you know, the same things. we Well, we talked about in the last show, right? We talked about Ford saying yeah. there weren't enough parts out there for all of the automakers to hit their targets. So you got to expect this is going to happen. So where is it going to happen? Is it going to happen with Ford and Tesla and, I don't know, Toyota? Or is it going to happen with Lucid and Rivian and fill-in-the-blank new Chinese company? So the ability to get the parts is going to be part of the game here. Part of the game? There's a pun in there, I'm, but I'm a better man than that. Uh, are you? <laughs> no, no. Punch. <laughs> that was Isaac Webster, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry, I got the soundboard back. Can you tell? I love it. I love it. Uh, in any case, uh, no, I'm not a better man than that. Um, uh, it, but uh, this company, you know, made some unrealistic estimates and can't hit those estimates. And, um, you know, you mentioned the move in the stock. Investors now wondering about those estimates for good reason. They also had... Uh, no cars coming out of their production facility in Arizona for two and a half weeks in the last quarter. And they blamed it on uh, their new plan to do things better, which didn't seem to make any sense. They said they cited internal bottlenecks, but they've said they've got a new plan to alleviate those. And that's why things were so slow. In any case, uh, they did increase the number of cars coming out in the quarter, but only from 360 to 679. So even those targets that they put out there for the year's production um, uh, of 6,500 are still um, way above um, where they are, the rate at which they're putting out cars right now. So it raises the question, and indeed the question was asked during the quarterly conference call about, you know, what the heck's going on in your factory and why are you not even finishing the cars that, you know, that you say are finished, but they're in the, you, you know, they're in the factory. Like, are they really finished? What the heck's going on there? Here's CEO Peter Rawlinson. Yeah, I mean, the first question was the, the, the cars that we held back through Q2 at the factory. But we did that to really ensure that the quality was just perfect. And, you know, it was just fit and finish, adjustment on what we call flush and gap, the hood to the fenders, the, just the, 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 the finer points of finessing that you would expect, features and the quality commensurate with a, a luxury automobile. And uh, although many of those cars were, were meeting uh, some of the standards of my quality team, I took the decision that I, want to, I really want to up the game here and get things right. Now we're actually uh, releasing a lot of those cars, we're directing them to our service centers right now, and then they'll find themselves their way through customers having had that attendant love and attention and care. And I think they'll be delighted with uh, our best efforts to make them as perfect as they can be. So make them delightful, yeah. Also, Who make like them. like a delightful car? Right. I mean, they are running out of time to hit this even lower, lower, lower target. Yeah, and, and, and the competition's coming, right? That's the other thing. Is it, is well, yeah. it the, the inability of these companies to improve their cars and improve their fit and finish is going to um, mean that they're not on the market and they're not establishing brand as the big guys like Ford are coming up fast from behind. Yeah, and I mean, how do you compete with Ford when they're, you know, Ford's gobbling up all the supplies they need 
to transition to electric. Well, in my right? book, the Lucid car looks a whole lot better than that uh, E Mustang, but the E Mustang is a lot cheaper. I don't. I, have you seen the E Mustang? I, you know, since we've talked last, I have seen yeah. it. I don't have as visceral a response as you do. <laughs> but um, I'm the yeah. last person should be talking about what people drive. <laughs> we won't even but, talk. Carol Master, my old my old colleague, our old colleague, yeah, my former co-host at Bloomberg, constantly mocked me for my lack of a fancier car. What kind of car do you drive? I I'm don't not even talking know. about that. Let's move on to the next stock oh quick God, oh before God. I have to answer this question. It's that bad, huh? Oh yeah. Corey, what is your next drill down? Advanced micro devices known to you and I as AMD. AMD trades under AMD and shares have dropped over 7% in a year, but shares have been steadily climbing the past month, rising over 38%. It's kind of interesting, you know, when these guys announced their earnings uh, most recently, the stock fell in after hours and uh much ink was spilled overnight about uh, the quarter and how the quarter wasn't good and everything. And I was looking at the results as I crossed and I thought, doesn't look that bad. I, you know, I didn't trade on it. I wouldn't be reporting on it right now if I did trade on it. But uh, sure enough, the stock shot up when the when the full market was engaged and look, I had a chance to look at the results. Um, the Bernstein analysts, I usually don't quote analysts, I usually don't read analysts, but uh, Bernstein has a great semiconductor analyst named uh, Stacy Rasgun. And she wrote that these were, uh, they were like a snack. They were a little crunchy on the outside, but the creamy center still tastes good. Oh my God. Uh, you know, it's better than most. Um, but I think that was just it. She the, must have the, had an English, uh, English degree. Or and lack then, And then transitioned <laughs> to finance. In any case, they, uh, um, the, the PC sales were weak. And this company sells chips for PCs and they sell chips for data centers. And they are engaging in some um, big technological advances, not least of which uh, a next generation five nanometer product, which is you know, the, the very bleeding edge of what uh, semiconductors can be. The result is, um, and they're also competing against Intel, and Intel has went from being one of the dominant companies in the world for decades and decades to being just a total mess, um, and Intel still has not recovered. And so the damaged nature of Intel competing against a strong data center business, yeah, PC sales are weak, but the data center business was really strong. Um, how strong? $1.5 billion in revenues for data center chip sales up 83% year over year. And the data center business wasn't wow. bad last year. So, you know, even the PC business was up 25% um, and is bigger for AMD. It's a $2.2 billion business from the quarter, again, compared to one and a half billion. But the data center business is more profitable and they're working really closely with their customers to make sure they are, we, uh, uh, you know, wedded to the designs of the future for the data center businesses, as well as the companies that make the the, um, the servers uh, that go into those data centers. If it's not the data center company itself, we know that a lot of other companies, a lot of companies are building their own um, servers. But, uh, you know, just strong results that looked like they're going to be stronger. And CEO Lisa Sue seemed to agree. The, the planning that we're doing jointly with our customers um, has, uh, has been very helpful. Uh, much of our conversation right now, frankly, is about 2023 and ensuring that we have um, enough capacity uh, for some of the build-outs um, that are out there. So I would say the visibility is, um, you know, very good. Um, and, you know, obviously things can change plus or minus here and there. But overall, I think the zip codes of, you know, how much growth, how much more content, 
um, uh, the customers need are, are very active conversations. And frankly, they've been active conversations for, for the past uh, few months. You know, I think the one positive of, you know, sort of the supply chain stuff that we've all gone through is that there's a new recognition of the need for long-term planning so that they can get their match sets and they can get their factory capacity and we can get our factory capacity um, in, uh, in line as well. So overall, a very, uh, very good visibility. So good visibility. I like to hear that. I, I, I get so sick of, you know, that I hate that cliche whenever um, the economists on bubble TV talk about, uh, well, we have a lot of uncertainty right now. We always have uncertainty. When, when is there ever certainty? We know exactly it's a sure what's going to get drunk happen. as a drinking game. Anytime yeah, someone I says it. I wouldn't advise you'll be hammered before noon. And I'd hear that's nine o'clock. Or you see it in a Chiron, you know, a lower oh, third. The lower third, if it's spelled yep. correctly. Yeah. <laughs> Would you yeah. ever, uh, I, I actually still do this. I'll be watching um, uh, a network that I have worked at uh, one or two. There have been a couple and I'll see a misspelled Chiron and I'll call the control room. You still do? I still do that when I see a misspelled Chiron. Oh, I feel God. so bad for the, because, you know, within the television universe, the person with the least experience and sometimes the one you trust the least is the one in charge of the lower thirds, the Chirons that appear yeah. on the bottom of the TV screen. It's the first job you get. It's the first job you get. And yeah. it's, it's in your begging for a screw up and the misspellings are hilarious. And ch chances are the people writing the Chirons don't really know what the words mean. Si yeah. The significance of what they're writing. I mean, because it, you know, it takes an MBA to sometimes to understand what it is in high finance. So if you work in a control room, <laughs> I got your back. Make sure I've got the direct dial. I'll help you out someday. Just when you least expect it. Corey, what's your next drill down? Do you know the company Neighbors? I'd like to take a look at Neighbors today. Sounds friendly. Neighbors. I don't know Neighbors, but it's not Neighbors like your neighbor in your neighborhood. It's N-A-B-O-R-S, Neighbors Industries. Well. And uh, trades under NBR. And it could be like a neighbor in your neighborhood. I guess. I mean, not spelled correctly. They that's that's a really misspelled Chiron. But uh, so Neighbors Industry shares uh, NBR. The trades under NBR. Shares have risen forty six percent in a year, even though they've dropped seventeen percent over the past week. These guys drill oil wells, so they drill in the U.S., Canada, and other places. Um, they have a, uh, they do, you know, they, they finish wells, they'd run tubes down wells or run, you know, casing down wells. It's a $4 billion enterprise value company. And, uh, they report a decent quarter revenues up 11% year over year, their rig technology business up 23%. But, you know, once again, and we've been doing this a lot, uh, once again, these guys, um, are just starting to show that they're getting ready for the U S to drill a lot more specifically the lower 48 states market um their their average revenues were uh, up about 10 percent uh for their daily uh, rig rate which was twenty five thousand six hundred five hundred sixty six dollars whatever 25 grand per day but that's up by twenty five hundred dollars over the previous quarter um their day rates are eight thousand dollars higher on average right across the, the sort of their leading edge business and they said they continued to go up in july uh, so it's pretty interesting. They're also, in, in terms of that, so if they think things are going to get better, they set up their contracts to be shorter so they can raise the rates as things right. get better. And that is exactly Smart. what CEO Tony Petrello said they're up to. We made a tactical decision last year 
to go very short on our on our contract length. So that put us in a position now that uh, we have price reopeners on a large portion of our fleet. I think 70% of our existing rigs, we have, the, we have an ability between now and the beginning of next year to reprice. And so that, so we're going to take advantage of that, given the fact that the market has moved quite a bit, that, that, and that's the goal, and that's the strategy to do that. So that, that's exactly where it comes from. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and today, we, we, as I said in the prepared remarks, that number is about $8,000 above our, our, our second quarter average, so it's very substantial. So, it, you know, in the third quarter, we'll be focusing on trying to get as many of those as we can. As I said, 70% of the fleet by the by the first quarter next year can reprice, and that's what that's the, that's the strategy to take advantage of that window. So there you have it. They're they're setting up their pricing for a lot more business coming uh, in the near term, uh, and I think that that's super bullish for the oil and gas industry in the U.S. Uh, in that they're going to be drilling more, and that might mean gas prices go down, oil prices go down, whatever. But more drilling, at least that's the bet that neighbors, uh, who will be one of the first ones to get checks, that's what neighbors is betting on. Um, and so I thought that was a super interesting and probably important call. Great for the environment too, right? Sure. Why not? All right. Well, coming up next, we're going to look at a really interesting company that's got a, a different way of providing cloud software, hybrid cloud software. Uh, and the company's reported some really strong results recently. We talked to the CEO of Nutanix, CEO Rajiv Ramaswamy, right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We are joined right now by the CEO of Nutanix, Rajiv Ramaswamy, joining us from Silicon Valley. Um, Rajiv, glad to have you. Um, uh, I want to—I like—I haven't always done a great job in this podcast of giving our listeners the sort of audio cues of what the company is that we're talking about in terms of just the size. So you guys are about a three and a half billion dollar market cap company. Um, uh, uh, you know where we are in the market cycle right now. A lot of companies have smaller market caps than they used to. Um, uh, but still a, a very big company, very important company in the world of technology, um, but also a company that's gone through a lot of change in the last couple of years. Um, you know, whereas you once sold server devices, I don't know what a server device is, I'll have you explain it to me, with a little bit of software tossed in, and now you're just selling software. Tell me what these, tell me what, what these, the, the two business models have in common in terms of the customer experience. Sure, very much so. So, Corey, first of all, glad to be on the show with you. Uh, really nice to do this. Uh, in terms of what we've been going through as a company, first of all, I think it's good to understand what we do, uh, which is ultimately today we provide a cloud software platform on top of which companies, whatever kind of company they are, can run all their applications and store their data and manage them all, regardless of where they sit, whether they are sitting in data centers and edge locations or in the public clouds. Now, how did we get here to your point about the business model and how that's changed? When we started our journey back as a company uh, in 2009, we started out by taking the software that we built and also combining that with the hardware that it runs on and selling the entire thing as what people would call an appliance. Now, from there on, we realized that customers need choice and there's no reason for us to be locked into a particular form of hardware. We can be very generic when it comes to using standard server hardware that's out there from the likes of HPE, Dell, Lenovo, Supermicro, and any number of providers. 
So we transitioned the company to a new business model, which is just where we sell only the software. Customers choose to run that on whatever hardware they like. And these days, by the way, they run it also in the public cloud, not just in, uh, on hardware on-prem. And uh, so that's a different business model. We are now a software company. We made that transition. And not only just a software company, but we're also purely a subscription company. Everything we do today is a subscription model where customers choose you know, the duration uh, in terms of what they want to buy from us and how long they want to engage. In what, what, what was the, what was the hardware? What was the device? Was it a literal, like a server with a drive and all of the access ports to connect to that drive? Or exactly. was it something that sat on top of such a server? No, it's actually a very simple standard commodity server uh, with, with a bunch of storage in it and with some networking ports on it. So a pretty, pretty standard device, which is why we said, well, why are we in the business of taking a standard device and putting our software on it and stamping it, we can just let the customer choose that device because it's pretty standard. Yeah, I mean, the history of technology shows us that, that devices like that with drives or with chips, there is a race to the bottom in terms of margin and exactly. um, competitive edge. Correct, so today we are a software company with um, 80% plus gross margins, right? So we don't have to deal with the hardware commodity aspects and customers can choose the, the commodity hardware that they like to get, uh, you know, pick. Now you say you can run any kind of application on top of your software. So it, it exists sort of like an operating system? Exactly. You think of us like an operating system for infrastructure. So people have to, any, any application requires compute resources, storage resources, network resources, right? It needs to run on something, CPUs. It needs to uh, consume storage and it needs networking to talk to others. And what we do is we abstract all of that out in our software and we manage all the underlying physical resources, whether it's compute, storage, networking. We simplify all of that for the application and for the customer so that they get these virtual pools of infrastructure resources that they can then assign to run whatever application they want and run a whole range of applications. They can actually assign the specific resources required for every application and manage those very, very dynamically. This is really what's called a cloud, right? Fundamentally, a cloud does this. And what we provide is a cloud operating model wherever they want to run. What are we seeing in terms of adoption of the cloud now? I mean, is the cloud is no longer a new concept. It's no longer even optional for most CIOs. Um, and the notion of hybrid cloud is getting, uh, at least it seems to me in, in, in what I read, I read about companies that, that continue to provide a hybrid cloud, which is, hey, I know you want to keep some data on premises or some applications on premises because they're so sensitive. You don't want them out in the cloud. But increasingly, companies are putting this so sensitive stuff on the cloud because it's just easier to use for their users and cheaper to operate. But where are we right now in that in that migration and, and trust of the cloud for um, sensitive data and apps? Yeah, so clearly, I mean, I think, as you said, the two key things are applications and the data that they consume. Those are the things that people care about. Now, there's various reasons as to what determines the location for where an application runs and where the data that it, uh, it needs is stored. Now, you talked about sensitivity in terms of security, compliance, but there's also data privacy. There is security. There is a cost. Uh, and then there is latency in terms of some, you know, a lot of data is going to be generated at the edge. Uh, in fact, people have said that more than 50% yeah. of data that's being generated in the world is going to be generated at the edge. And taking all that stuff and moving it to the cloud is a very expensive proposition. And you also want to be able to act on that data that's being generated fairly quickly locally. So there's any number of reasons here as to why one size doesn't fit all. There's going to be a set of applications and data that can be running well in a cloud, in a public cloud. 
There's others that will run inside data centers, but in a cloud-like environment. And there's yet others that are going to run in edge locations. And on top of that, it's not just one public cloud, it's multiple public clouds. People have choice. So this is a complexity that most companies are dealing with. So they might want to be in Azure and they might want to be in Amazon Web Services exactly. and they might want to be in Google Cloud all at once. All at once for different use cases. And they have some running on-premises and some in their edge. This is a complexity that they're dealing with. I wonder if I just dissed the Oracle Cloud. I feel so guilty. I'll get over it. Um, so let me ask further. Um, could you, I, you know, you're a big company. You've probably got a reference case of, of, a, of a, a client that that uses these sort of different approaches to their, their data and their apps. Very much so. And in fact, we've got clients in various stages of their journey. There are clients on, one, on the one extreme who have largely legacy infrastructure that they're looking to modernize and, uh, and modern infrastructure, which we provide. Then there's clients who modernize their infrastructure already on us that are looking to expand into the public cloud. And then there's a category of clients who've said, well, I'm mostly done with my on-prem and I actually want to migrate some of my stuff to the public cloud. So we have companies in across every one of these categories. And for every one of these categories- Give me, one example. Give, me, give, me an, give me an example of a company that's got both going on. Oh yeah, in fact, there's many of them. So let me give you, the, give you an example of, uh, uh, I'll give you several examples. I'll give you a small example here. Uh, there's a betting company that we work with, okay? And this is a betting company that actually was doing business uh, uh, in the UK. And they were running their application on our platform they decided they wanted to expand operations into Asia. And to do that, they had to actually get a footprint in Asia. Now, if you, if you go out there and try to open a traditional data center, that's gonna take a long time. It'll take six months, a year before you could get there. If you try to take the app access and try to just run it natively in the public cloud, that also takes time because the application has to be refactored and it's uh, expensive and it takes time. Instead, what did they do? They took the app that was running on our software and they just replicated it in a public cloud environment in AWS, in Asia. They were up and running with an Asia operation in two weeks. So this is an example of a company that's wow. actually doing both, right? They're running their core application, betting application on-prem inside their data center in their prime country. They're able to do a geographic expansion here within a matter of a few weeks. That's just one example of what we enable. And there's many, many other examples. Um, in, no, I get it, I think that's a good one. Um, I'm reading about your company, reading your, your financial statements and so on. I, I, uh, uh, but there is this conversation about the um, hyper-converged network. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, what's the difference between converged and hyper-converged? Yeah, so think about, in fact, converged used to be the old thing. So what converged was, was just, if you look at the fundamental resources inside of a data center, it's compute, storage, network. Converge was just, these things remain separate. You know, you had separate compute, storage, and network, but you're trying to manage them together in some form or fashion. With hyper-converged, which is a category that we created, what we really said was, look, you don't need to have separate teams managing compute, storage, network. You don't need to have separate hardware for compute, storage, and network. Take everything, put it on a commodity server. The hardware is just now a commodity server with commodity storage. We will manage all of these resources for the customer, compute storage network. And now you can do this with one single person or a single team, rather than having three separate teams buying three pieces of expensive hardware. Right? That is a fundamental value proposition of hyperconverge. Simplifying it, breaking these silos within the data center and dramatically reducing you know, both your capital costs and your operating costs and simplifying the infrastructure.
So let's have a conversation right now as if we were in, say, summer of 2022, which we are. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a really um, odd time in the world of tech spending, and we've gotten really mixed signals from different companies. I wonder what what it, where are listen, you know, cybersecurity obviously a big preference. Maybe that spending doesn't mm -hmm. slow down where we are right now, uh, regardless of of what the financial conditions are for the companies. They don't have a choice. What, what how are they deciding? How are you convincing them to spend with you? And when and what kind of pushback are you getting? And if you tell me there's no pushback. No one's going to believe you. So tell me, oh, tell me how what you're up against when you're selling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, first of all, I think uh, the value proposition here is companies are going digital. Everybody's going digital. Everybody's figuring out how to come up with new apps to interact with their customers as well as their employees, and they've got to figure out how to run these things efficiently. And when they look at the infrastructure that all of this stuff needs to run at, they're looking to optimize that. They're looking to make it simple. And finding talent, by the way, this is the other thing that we see. You know, everybody wants to go digital, but there's a big scarcity of talent and qualified talent to go run all of this stuff. And so they're looking as much as possible you know, to keep these things simple. So the thing that we do fundamentally is make all of these very complex enterprise software pieces simple and hide all the complexity underlying uh, so that they can have, our customers can get a very simple experience. And we do that by delivering significant TCO benefits for modernizing the infrastructure. So customers look at this and say, okay, well, as I go modernize my applications, I've got to modernize my infrastructure, and they come to us because it makes a lot of sense. Now, what are we seeing in terms of uh, near-term demand signals? I think are good. We haven't seen a fall-off in demand because of a recession yet, okay? But what we have seen, of course, is, as you all know, software still needs to run on hardware. And the challenges that we are seeing is the supply chain challenges out there are quite strong, substantial. People can't get hardware to run. That stuff. So uh, it's like an example of if you're a consumer and you're buying a Netflix subscription, but you don't have a TV to watch it on, what do you do? So you will activate the subscription right. only when you get the TV, right? And so that's the recent situation that we're seeing because when, when somebody goes places an order for a server these days, it takes you know many months to get one. Uh, and and so obviously you know while they like our software, the software has to run on that server, and so there's some temporary delays that we're seeing in terms of. Uh, what's happening in the market. But I don't see a fundamental shift because fundamentally this notion of going digital, going to the cloud, enabling hybrid work, these are here to stay for quite a long time and they're uh, long-term uh, long priorities for almost every company, regardless of which industry or sector they're in. I would imagine also that you're doing everything you can to be, to be mindful of how the supply chain is changing for those server sellers how do you monitor that yourself? Absolutely. So the first thing we do is to say we have a broad ecosystem. We are not tied to any particular server manufacturer. Our software runs on a variety of servers for many different vendors. And we partner with many of them. And we have a sense of what their availability looks like. And we do tell the customer to say, hey, customer, you have a choice here. You can decide where you want to run. You pick your server vendor of choice. But increasingly now, one of the big factors in your decision is going to be what can you get? And when can you get it? As opposed right. to just picking a vendor right. and going with it. So, so that starts influencing your choice. If you've got a, a business imperative to get something done by a certain amount of time, you want to make sure that things are aligned. And the bottleneck is likely going to be uh, hardware availability. Yeah, your blue BMW might end up being a little red Corvette. So yes. are you getting, what are you getting a sense about? Are you getting a sense that it's getting, because I'll say that I, from, you know, I listen to, 
uh, dozens of, of uh, conference calls every single week. And I really am getting a sense that it's getting, it's not better and it's not going to be completely better anytime soon, but that it is a lot better than it was. Yeah, I think it's kind of reached a steady state now. Uh, you know, we've, we've experienced this now for quite a while. Everybody's working as hard as they can to go remedy the situation, bringing other sources to the market. I think it's still going to take some time. Yes, it's probably not worsening, but it's going to take some time before it gets back to normal. And if you ask me, it's probably going to be here with us for the next several quarters. And uh, it's hard for me to have a crystal ball and say when it's going to be back to normal. But I anticipate that we're going to be in this, in this environment, supply constraint environment, starting with chips, but also all kinds of other materials combined with logistics uh, issues uh, for, for some period of time here. It also seems that companies might end up, it's, it's, it's going to be bumpy for a little bit because companies are going to over order just to try to get what they need and prepare for any growth. And they're inevitably going to be stuffed with inventory they don't need. And that's going to be pushed back on the server makers and the server makers are going to push back on the chip makers the chip makers are, are going to be pushed back on the DRAM makers, and then we're going to have some more problems in technology. You know, kind of there'll be a second wave of the of the slowdown tsunami. Yeah, and thankfully that's why you know we we are a little excluded from that. Thankfully, because we're a software company. So yes, you're right. I mean, people can tend to overorder hardware, but they don't tend to overorder software, right? They buy licenses as to how much what yeah, they true. need. Yeah, Software can be delivered immediately. That's, that's right. one of the beauties, right? We don't have to worry about inventory management for software. All right, so we won't worry about you. Rajiv Ramaswamy is going to be just fine. We appreciate your time. So the Dentatics CEO uh, joining us here on the Drill Down Podcast. When the Drill Down Podcast continues, we are going to have the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to the Drill Down podcast with great ease by asking your smart speaker to play the Drill Down podcast. So wherever you are, you can listen to our latest show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We're back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. And uh, Nutanix, interestingly, Isaac, is growing maybe a little bit faster than it was during the pandemic, uh, uh, despite the hard difficulty of getting hardware during the pandemic um, uh, that the CEO was talking about there. So their their last 12 month uh, growth rate is 19. Drum roll, drum roll, drum roll, 19. 19.1%. Uh, and so they did about $1.6 billion in sales. Now they warned that the next quarter was going to be really slow, and I think that it was slower than some had expected, and it, it hurt their stock price quite a bit. But nineteen uh, percent year-over-year growth is pretty nice, especially when it's so profitable. It's, yeah, not something to Gross turn away from. At least company, of course, is a money-losing enterprise, but they lost about a half a billion dollars last year. What's a half a billion dollars between friends? Exactly. You've been listening to the Drill Down Podcast. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.